You're listening to episode 81 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest, Dr. Mark Kovacs. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. As always, I'm really grateful that you're tuning in to listen to the show today. Today I have a great episode with Dr. Mark Kovacs, and I actually brought the audio from uh, one of my Tennis Summit sessions with Dr. Kovacs. I've actually had him on the Tennis Files Podcast before, but he's also participated in my Tennis Summits. And for this particular session, he talks about the eight-stage model of the tennis serve. And I know that so many of us, me included, have uh, struggled on our serves, different points of the technique, whether it's the unit turn, the take back, the racket drop, the loading position, the release. So Dr. Kovacs covers all of these different phases of the serve in this session. And so he's one of the masters of technique and of sports performance. And so it's really always a privilege to talk to Dr. Kovacs and to learn from him and everything that he has to offer to the tennis world. I've also attended his World Tennis Fitness Conference in Atlanta a couple times, and I've really enjoyed it and connected with so many cool people, many of whom I've included on the podcast and on my summits as well. So I think you'll really enjoy it. And on another note, the... Shutdown has finally stopped for now. Uh, I guess there's a CR that was passed recently in continuing resolution. So we have three weeks until the next potential crap show comes about. So we'll see what happens. But I'm happy to be back at work. Although I have to admit I did enjoy the increased time for tennis. But I'm still going to be playing a lot of tennis. And I'm happy that everybody is getting some cash back in their pockets. So uh, I won't go much deeper into that. But it obviously affected my life and a lot, a lot of other people's lives uh, quite a bit. So it's it's good to get back to normal. But anyways, I really do hope that you enjoy this episode with Dr. Kovacs. And without further ado, here it is. Hey guys, I'm Mirban Aranshad and we're here at the 2017 Tennis Technique Summit to talk about the eight-stage model of the tennis serve with Dr. Mark Kovacs. I had the pleasure of having Dr. Mark Kovacs on the Tennis Files podcast on episode 33, and he was definitely uh, one of uh, the, you know, the most uh, talked about guests. And uh, Mark is a performance uh, physiologist, researcher, professor, author, speaker, and coach with an extensive background uh, training and researching elite athletes. Uh, Mark has been featured in many of the biggest sports and news publications, including ESPN, the New York Times, and Tennis Magazine. Uh, Mark was also an amazing player. He was a top college player at Auburn, and he achieved a world ranking on the ATP Tour. Um, And Mark is also the founder of the Kovacs Institute in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, Mark has trained some uh, fantastic uh, top professional tennis players, including John Isner, Sloane Stevens, Sam Querrey, Donald Young, and Melanie Udine. And Stack named Mark one of the top 31 fitness professionals to follow in 2015. So uh, Mark is clearly a very distinguished uh, guest on the uh, the summit and uh, really happy to have you on, Mark. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, really excited to be here. Always fun to talk tennis and you know, share ideas. Yeah, fantastic, Mark. I really appreciate it. And I think uh, it's going to be really a, a lot of fun uh, talking about the serve today because you know, you've uh, pretty much crafted and written also an extensive paper on breaking down the serve into a, basically an eight-stage model. So I kind of want to just start off with you know asking you to kind of just uh, – in brief to describe, you know, basically what the eight stage model is. Sure. So yeah, this came about, you know, five, six years ago. Now uh, we were doing a lot of work analyzing the best servers of all time uh, and trying to find those commonalities. And there are some, uh, and we really utilized our work in baseball as well. So utilizing what's been done in the baseball pitching mechanics literature 
uh, and then also in the tenor-specific literature. And the objective here is really to get a simplified way of understanding what all good servers go through. And really the eight stages were the eight important, most important components of the service motion. And it really is pretty simple. You have a start component that has a lot to do with the style of the athlete. A lot of athletes start differently. Then you have a ball release. So when the ball comes out of the hand, there's a lot that goes on there. And that's a really important stage for nearly all players to make sure that's done correctly. Then we have a loading stage, which is really the lower body loading, which is really, really important to make sure the legs get utilized the correct way in the correct pattern. Uh, then we get into what's called the cocking stage, which is, comes from the baseball literature as well. It's the max external rotation of your upper arm. And it's really the last point that you're storing energy in the upper body. So you've already transitioned from the lower body into the upper body. Then you have acceleration, where acceleration is really you start going up into the ball. Uh, then you have contact, which is pretty important, or impact it's sometimes called. A very short stage, but very important, because that's really the whole purpose of the serve, is to get the racket to make contact with the ball. Uh, you know, And then we have the deceleration stage, and this is really, really important for a number of reasons, uh, because this is where a lot of the potential injuries happen and where the forces are really high on trying to slow down the arm. Uh, and then we have the finish, which is really the end of the serve, but it's really the beginning of the next stroke because what we need to do at the finish is stabilize our body, make sure that we can recover quickly to be able to hit the next ball. Yeah, I mean, that that's very comprehensive. And I guess kind of just starting with, you know, the very first uh, stage, uh, the, the start of preparation, um, can you talk through kind of like the different types of, uh, you know, ways that we can, uh, we can start the whole motion and, and if there's one that's preferred or if, you know, that there's many different ones that we can use that are equally effective? Yeah, no, it's really a, an interesting discussion point because uh, at the COVAX Institute, we run a course, a serve-specific course. And one of the things that's interesting is when we speak to great coaches, a lot of them have certain ways they like their players to start. Uh, a lot of the time, there's no real justification for it. It's just something they like. So you know, one of the things with the start, it's all stylistic. So we've seen, you know, from Goran Ivanisevic to Pete Sampras to Serena Williams to Roger Federer to John Isner, they all start a little bit differently. Their feet position, uh, some are wide, some are close. Their hip positions are a little bit different. So the, the start is truly a stylistic aspect of the service motion. And a lot of the things we want to make sure is we don't over or force the athlete into a start position that's not comfortable for them. But, you know, there's a lot of different variations we can do there. So usually we don't worry too much about the start unless there's a problem later in the motion. And then if there is, then we go back to the start and maybe readjust. But in general, it's do what feels right to the best of your ability to allow the next stages of the serve to happen. Gotcha, Mark. That's a great point there. And I'm just wondering if, if you know, obviously there's many different ones, but is there one that is most commonly used? And, and also as a follow-up, I mean, you know, I, I'm trying to think, say, I had some coach who told me that it's, it facilitates the whole movement if you actually start the arms up because then it, you know, drops and lets the whole thing flow versus kind of starting uh, where your arms are kind of... Uh, potentially maybe more tight or tense. Uh, so any thoughts on, on all that? Yeah, again, it's got, it's got a lot to do with timing, rhythm, what people like to do. But um, yeah, but there really isn't. And again, we try to base everything we do off the evidence and what really links to the most important components of the serve. So, you know, there are people that really like to start with their arms low, really relaxed, have a longer type of wind-up. Uh, which is totally fine. Then there are other people that start very close with their arms higher and really get into the motion, the real meat and potatoes of the motion much faster. Again, there's fast motions, there's slow motions that can both be successful. So a lot of it has to do to, with what the next stage is in the motion. So to, to me, the important part is how are they when they get into their loading stage? They get to their loading stage correctly, then the start doesn't matter. It's working, whatever they're doing. So a lot of the time, unless you're talking about a true beginner, the start is not really something you, you need to teach. You need to make sure you understand it, 
but you really need to understand the release stage, which is next, and then the loading stage. They're the two most important from a standpoint of getting the mechanics correct. Got you, Mark. Perfect. Thanks so much for that. And so now talking about the release, um, kind of want to get into the specifics of the mechanics because that, that, you know, from what I'm reading is, is this basically when the, the toss uh, goes up and um, y- y- there is some, uh, uh, nomenclature here, which maybe for the audience we can uh, clarify. Basically, it's saying that um, you know the muscle activation is very limited in the left uh, erector spinae. Uh, I'm probably pronouncing this horribly um, during the start and release stages. So, could you kind of uh, talk about what exactly that means and in general what the release stage look like? Sure. So, yeah, I think you're reading from uh, one of our peer-reviewed publications that I did with uh, Todd Allenbecker. Uh, and again, that was designed more for physical therapists, medical doctors, chiropractors, people that sort of work with tennis athletes and understand the all the anatomy. So we were just talking about what aspects of the anatomy uh, are important during the motions. So from that standpoint, it's not necessarily something that needs to be understood for a coach or for an athlete. The real purpose is there isn't a lot of muscle activation that's going on during the release. Really what's happening is our, for a right-hander, our left arm is releasing the ball. Usually you have it in an angle like this. So we want to have a little bit of a range. So the ball is going to be released somewhere. The arm angle is somewhere at about one to two o'clock. So if 12 o'clock straight, it's off in, in that area. So we see a lot of people have trouble where they release straight on. So it's straight out in front of them. And when they do that, they shift their weight forward too early usually. And secondarily, they can't really get effective hip turn. So that's the two biggest things that we see uh, players struggle with with the release. The other aspect with the release that we know, we analyze hundreds of servers to see where the ball actually came out of their hands. And we know that all good servers release the ball in a very small area, meaning that the ball comes out about eye level or to the top of the head. So it's only about that much distance that the ball is actually released. If you release the ball too low, the ball goes out in front of you and you're always chasing your toss. If you release the ball too high from the hand, it means the ball goes over your head or goes to your left for a right-handed server. So we know we have to have a very defined area of space that we actually release the ball from the fingertips. And that's a really, really important concept for most servers to focus on because it does give you a sense of where to release and how to release. And then it makes sure that you don't have a toss that gets too far out in front of you or too far behind you. Fantastic, Mark. So a couple of clarifying questions. One is, um, you know, when you analyze all the servers, so is there at least some degree of, uh, of the arm being bent then there's this are there a few that actually have the arm very all oh, fully straight when they toss then yeah so again there's there are some players that have slightly bent arms when they release majority of them are straighter the recommendation for most players is to keep the arm straight there's less chance of flipping the ball there's less movement at the elbow there's no movement really at the elbow and that takes out variability and that takes out chance of risk So again, it's one of those things with players, we want to minimize the chance of making an error. And by having a bent elbow or having an arm bent, you've got the ability then to flick the ball. Same with the wrist. If our wrist moves a lot, we've got the ability to flick the ball, which is just another area that we may do something that we don't want to do. So in general, we want from the shoulder to the fingers to be straight the entire way. And then the ball just comes out of the fingers. So our goal with all of this is to minimize wasted movement, minimize the chance of some part of the body causing a problem. Great, Mark. And also with the um, getting to the weeds of the toss also, you know, the position of the palm, I'm curious too. Um, you know, I've, I've seen players, you know, with the palm up. I've seen some that actually hold the ball like, uh, I guess, a cup or an ice cream, cream cone, which has been suggested to me before to help with the toss. And even some players that have the palm pretty much down. So I'm curious, uh, any data regarding that? So it's a great question. And again, a bit of that is style. If you want to go palm down, which is a little harder, some very few people do it, but there is a palm down version. There's, like you said, the beer can, ice cream can kind of release, which is to the side, or you've got the more traditional, which is the palm up. And in general, you know, 
any of them can work as long as the ball gets in the right spot consistently. So that's a bit of a style issue. Uh, in, in general, it's more consistent over a large number of people with the palm up version. But again, if you're comfortable doing a, you know, the, the can version or the ice cream version or even the palm down, it's one of those things where if you get the ball consistently in the right spot, it's working. Because that's really the objective. We don't want to, you know, cause an issue with someone who serves fine or gets the ball in the right spot consistently uh, by changing that position. There's no need to do that. But in general, if you're having all sorts of problems with your toss, you may want to adjust how you release the ball. But there's other factors that, that are going to be more important from that standpoint. All right. Great stuff, Mark. I think two of the biggest takeaways are pretty much um, if you do want to minimize any variability, uh, straight arm and also uh, kind of releasing it at eye level. And uh, one last question for the toss is um, as far as looking at the ball, do you do you look at the, you know, start looking at the ball once it, it gets to eye level? Because, uh, you know, obviously you, what you could do is just look at the ball, you know, from it being in your hand as well. So I was just wondering if there's any, uh, any thoughts about that as well. Yeah, no, it's one of those things. The biggest thing is you do at, you know, when you're getting into your load, you want to be looking up. How you get there is somewhat stylistic again. You know, some people will follow the ball from the beginning all the way and they'll look at the ball the entire time. Other people won't look at the ball at all until it's up in the air. So it's one of those aspects of maybe, you know, I like to a lot of the time say even though I analyze the serve in, in great detail down to the millisecond of movement, most of the time I'd say in this situation, don't overthink that piece of it because you can really get yourself in trouble if you're overthinking too many parts of the motion. Let me overthink it. And then as a player, you know, or, or even as a coach sometimes, keep it simple and focus on the things that really matter. Exactly. Mark, appreciate that advice very much. And so now we get to the loading phase, which is uh, just incredibly important. And you see, you know, a lot of um, mistakes being made here. And uh, just kind of want to talk to you or ask you about really the, the critical elements of a, of a good load for the serve. Yeah, so loading's the most important stage from a lower body perspective. If the load isn't done correctly, the rest of the service motion will never be perfect. You can make up for some areas in the upper body, but if the load's not done right, what we typically see is the lower back is uh, puts more strain, the abs, we put more strain, and then, of course, the shoulder and elbow starts doing more work than they need to. So it's really, really important to have a great load. The couple of things that you need to remember is making sure that you get two big aspects involved. The back leg needs to load, so we need to push down and back on the back leg and we need to get a twist rotation of the hip. So for a right-hander, the right leg goes down and back and then the right hip turns a little bit so that it'll actually turn somewhat clockwise for a right-handed player. So the real purpose behind all this is we have to go back to high school physics and talking about for every action, we have an equal and opposite reaction. That concept is related to the serve because when we're serving, we're trying to get our body weight to go up and out into the court. Uh, and to do that effectively, we have to drop our weight during loading back and down. So this is a really, really important aspect of the serve that we understand the motion aspect so that we store our energy correctly so that we can release it in the right direction. And most players screw that up. That's really where we see the majority of players screw up. They shift their weight too far forward too early, so their front leg does most of the work. Back leg's not engaged. If the back leg isn't engaged well, you, you leave miles per hour on the table. So it's really, really important to make sure that you uh, understand the importance of the back leg, the importance of not shifting your weight too far forward. Because if you do that, what happens is you usually over-rotate, meaning that your shoulders over-rotate and they become parallel to the net too early in the motion. And by doing that, we really limit our ability to hit different types of serves and then our upper body does more work than our lower body, which increases our injury risk potentially, uh, but also uh, zaps us of potential power. So there's a lot of factors there that 
can really limit your serve if your lower body isn't done correctly. Gotcha, Mark. That's great stuff. And so for somebody who's having trouble loading, uh, would you recommend that they do that they do the platform or pinpoint uh, to, you know, which one do you think will help facilitate the learning of the uh, proper loading? Great question. So just to clarify, the platform serve is when both feet are separated. So like separated like this and they stay separated throughout the motion. So the athlete on the right leg will drop down and back it and then they'll jump up somewhat together. Whereas a pinpoint is they'll usually start back and the back foot will come forward and then they'll drop and go. And they're the two most common service motions. I also say there's one third one which isn't recommended, which is called the foot around motion. That's when the back foot actually comes up and goes by the side of the front foot. So it goes like that. So what happens there is an athlete's back foot comes around really early. They over-rotate their hips and their shoulders. Uh, they can hit a slice serve with that motion but they usually can't do anything else productively. And that's a big negative. And you see that with quite a few players as well. But going back to your initial question regarding what's better to help with loading, both are very effective and both can really do a great job if done correctly. The biggest thing is when you bring your foot up, there's one more variable there. The foot has to come up and then it has to go down and then you have to load into the back leg. So it's a little harder for some people to do Sometimes when they bring their foot up and put it down, they already shift their weight too far forward. So usually if you're having trouble, would recommend you going with the platform stance because it's easier. There's less moving parts. Anytime we have less moving parts, it should be easier for an athlete to, to practice and to get comfortable with. Perfect, Mark. And you know, just to clarify, I mean, just great points about the, the weight distribution um, is, you know, when we start to lower our, our lower bodies, I mean, the, is basically the majority. The majority of the the weight is going to be on the back foot, and then it's not until we explode into the ball that I mean, the weight is is transfers. Or is that correct? Or could we kind of dive into that? Yeah, definitely. So you know, the nice thing about our institute in Atlanta is we analyze this with our players all the time. We use a lot of different technologies to see weight shift, muscle activation patterns, things like that during the different strokes, and especially on the serve. And the great servers all have more weight on the back leg during the beginning of the load. And then it shifts gradually to nearly all the weight on the front leg as they take off the ground. So it actually has a gradual shift. It starts during the load with all, not all, but it's usually 60, 70% of the weight on the back leg. And then as the weight shifts, both feet are still on the ground, but weight is shifting to the front leg. And then by the time they're exploding off the ground, we have a large percentage of the weight on the front leg. So the front leg does get the weight, but you have to build it up using the back leg and then the back hit. Because we know the number one correlation with serve speed is how quickly the back hip accelerates from load to getting off the ground. Oh, that's wonderful, Mark. And so um, is there a minimally... Um, you know, sufficient uh, amount of rotation, um, you know, back. Because you see, you know, some players, they're rotating very far back. Uh, you see others that don't rotate as much, maybe like Nishikori, I think. But uh, what, what, were you, what would you suggest somebody, for someone who doesn't really know how much they should even be rotating? So, again, a lot of factors come into rotation, depth, all of this. If you're really stiff, really tight, have lack of muscle strength, all of this is going to limit how much you can rotate. So you have to understand your body, where you're at in life, your age. There's a lot of factors that contribute to your total rotation. The more you rotate within reason, the more range you're going to get, the more leverage you can create, the faster and more powerful your serve should be. So you've got to understand that in this environment, if it comes from the hips, it's usually a good thing comes from the lower back, it's a bad thing. We have to limit our rotation and movement in the lower back. Our thoracic region, our upper back, can move and should move a little bit, but our lower back, our lumbar region, is not something where we want to put a lot of that rotation. And unfortunately, a lot of players don't know the difference. They don't realize it. Their hips are tight, so they try to find range from somewhere else, and that causes them a lot of problems. 
So you want to get as much rotation as you can from the hips, but not from the lower back. So it's really important to understand the difference there because there are well-meaning people that have poor technique because they hear that concept, maybe, hey, I want to get more back leg, I want to be able to twist, rotate a little bit, but they get it from the wrong spot. So make sure that you have your serve analyzed, make sure you understand what is the right and wrong you know, mechanics of it for your body type and for your physical limitations or restrictions. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at New Balance. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. That's a great point, Mark. And uh, I, I remember I uh, purchased a course that you made with uh, Will from Fuzzy Yellow Balls. And one of the great drills that uh, actually impacted my serve was uh, when you had Will, uh, you know, only stand on his back foot, basically, and kind of bend back, sort of, and then, you know, launch into the ball. Yeah. Um, so he had the left foot up as a right-hander. Um, and that, that was a really good one as far as teaching how, how much, you know, impact there is if you put the right weight distribution on your on your back leg. Um, so that's fantastic there. Um, one other question, too, and this is kind of stepping back a tiny bit, but as far as the, the, the you know, all the wonderful data that you've compiled and, and analyzed uh, players' technique, is the initiation of the loading uh, or unit turn, uh, is, is that uh, from the shoulders or the hips? Yeah, nearly everything is hip-related. It's a really good question. Same thing on the ground strokes as well. We talk shoulder turn a lot, which happens, no doubt. But the hips are the driving force with all these motions. The hips and shoulders should work together seamlessly. As the hip goes, the shoulder goes. But you can turn your shoulder without much hip turn. And when you do that, you, you increase the, the reliance on the shoulder. So one of the challenges we see with a lot of players is if they rely on their shoulder to do the work, that we can actually put your shoulder position in a compromised environment, which can increase risk of injury. So we want to make sure that our hips are loose, our hips are flexible, our hips do the majority of the work, rather than asking our shoulder to find the extra range. Because the shoulders will get range and will have to go through an appropriate range of motion but you want to make sure that comes after the hip does its job. Very interesting, Mark, because, I mean, you know, this is great uh, discussion, just uh, different viewpoints sometimes. You know, there are definitely coaches who think that the majority of the uh, initiation of the movement is from the shoulder. So it's uh, it's very, you know, obviously enlightening to have a different perspective as well. No, um, the important part of that is that most of the coaches that say that aren't wrong. The shoulders do move, and it's not a – it's not – they're not saying something incorrect. It's just the, the shoulders will go with the hips, whereas the shoulders can move without the hip moving. So if you move your hips, your shoulders have to turn. So that's the preferred and optimal method. Focus on the hip turn. If you just focus on the shoulder turn, sometimes your hips don't move, and then you can put your shoulder position in more of a compromised environment that'll rob you a little bit of pace sometimes and also overload the shoulder and elbow potentially in the motion. So we just want to be a little careful there with semantics or terminology. Right, right. Thank you for the clarification, Mark. It's great stuff. And so also, um, I think still the loading phase we're in, the perhaps analyzing or discussing the you know, the angle of the hitting arm uh, and the loading phase, I'm wondering if there's some variability allowed in that or, and, you know, like 
perhaps the, the pos- position of the wrists and, and also, you know, like I mentioned, the arm. Well, what should that kind of look like? Great, great question. So we're really talking that trophy position sort of environment at this point. Uh, and the beauty about serving is it's a very symmetrical motion if it's done correctly. So we want approximately a 45-degree arm angle, meaning sort of the back arm. I don't know if you can see that, but it's sort of on that 45 degrees there. And you have a nice sort of range here that you have some variability depending on the athlete. But the the objective here is to have the elbow below the height of the shoulder, but not too low. So it's approximately that 45-degree angle. Uh, And that is usually achieved not by the arm position, meaning that a coaching cue a lot of people spend time on is drop your elbow, do something with your arm. Most of the time, the reason the elbow isn't in the right spot is because the back hip isn't in the right spot. If the back hip drops back and down, that brings the arm down because your center of mass is lower and you're shifting down. So ideally, you want your hips and shoulders to basically be like that on a 45-degree angle, both of them going down. Those are on approximately a 45-degree angle. Then the arm is on a 45-degree angle as well. So we have a very nice symmetry there. Well, of course, we can have 5, 10 degrees difference on any of that, but that's the concept that we want to try to approach, that we have really nice symmetry, hips, shoulders pointing in the same direction, back and down. Reason being is when we start releasing the energy, they're going to release up and out at, the, at that same opposite angle, and you get this cartwheel or shoulder over shoulder, hip over hip position. So it's all about storing energy in the opposite direction that we want to release it in. Great stuff, Mark. Yeah, I think, you know, a mistake that a lot of uh, amateur players make is they they drop the elbow far down because they, they look at the pros and, and it visually it looks like, you know, the arm is way down, but then they don't uh, also drop down the other elements of the body, like the, the hips and such. So that's where... And that's at. usually a strength weakness, a technical flaw that they don't realize they're doing. Uh, so usually that's corrected by fixing the lower body mechanics because all they're trying to do is find range. Anyone that has a lower elbow, low elbow position, it's not the elbow that's the issue. They're trying to find range because their hips haven't dropped in the right position, so they create the range in their arm. And that's a relative, really easy fix. Um, it's not something very difficult to fix, but you've got to focus on the right area. Yeah, Mark. And I love talking, uh, you know, also, uh, the training aspect with you. And, and so when you mentioned kind of, uh, physical deficiencies, um, say if somebody has a uh, problem with their, uh, range of, uh, you know, their hip range of rotation and such, should they, would you suggest, um, you know, more stretching? Uh, you suggest a, a strength program? I mean, is there one that you choose over the other? Is Are both uh, critical to achieve, uh, you know, improvement in that area? Yeah, it's, it's definitely you need both because you need to have a good stability, but you need stability through the full range. So typically you need flexibility first. You need to get the flexibility or this new range or the range that you want to be in. And as you're doing the flexibility work, we start building up some strength or stability. It's not heavy strength necessarily, but it's strong enough that you can balance and stabilize on one leg, on the back leg predominantly, in those low positions or the position at the bottom of the load. So it's really, really important to understand that and to train that. Flexibility followed by stability. So you know, strength is really what we want. So the problem you see a lot of people is they get strong, but they don't have the range or they have the range, but they don't have the strength. We need to combine both. Gotcha, Mark. That's great stuff. And this question may be, maybe it's too limited by uh, the number I'm asking here, but could you maybe give us uh, one or two um, hip exercises and perhaps one or two uh, hip stretches that you would actually recommend that if somebody, they devoted themselves to, uh, you know, this sort of mini program, they could at least uh, increase their uh, hip, uh, you know, rotation range and such. Sure. Again, it may be not, not be the easiest to see on camera, but in general, you know, anything single leg from a strengthening standpoint is great. So you can do, um, you know, variations on single leg squats. You can do uh, lunges off a bench. You know, sometimes they're called Bulgarian squats. So basically you put one leg on a bench, one leg on the ground, work on that. 
those two are great uh, you know, exercises to work on that. Even just jumping up and down on one leg for height is a great exercise because you're developing stability, you're developing landing mechanics. Really, really important to work on some of those things for the hip. From a stretching standpoint, a lot of different stretches. We just want to stretch our internal and external hip rotators. We want to do our piriformis, which is, uh, you know, uh, for you, you yoga folks, you know, there's the pigeon stretch or then there's the figure four stretch, which you're lying on your back. Uh, so those type stretches are great to make sure we get the range that we're wanting to get in the hips. Great stuff, Mark. I appreciate that so much. And so now we, you know, are going to shift back to the cocking phase. If you could just yeah. kind of describe, yeah, like just, you know, how that works in sure. athletes. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens here is we've shifted our weight now from the lower body up through the core. So we've already started to shift our stored energy in the lower body through our upper body. So we're starting to shift energy. At this point, we've reached our max external rotation of the shoulder. So the way you cue that visually is the tip of the racket is going to be pointing down to the ground. So that means we've reached our max external rotation of the shoulder. So this is the last stage in the upper body that we're still storing energy before we're about to release it. And that's a really, really important stage from a standpoint of timing and making sure we've got full leverage to release that energy out into the ball. So again, this has a lot to do with the player's flexibility, specifically not so much the shoulder, but the thoracic region, the upper back region. If an athlete is very tight in the upper back region, they don't have great cocking position. They don't have the ability to get in the right situation. Uh, and very easy to fix, but takes work, a lot of exercises to increase range through there. But that makes a huge, huge difference in storing a little bit extra energy in the upper body that we can release into the ball. All the great servers have phenomenal thoracic you know, mobility and the ability to get themselves that little extra range there where they can store the energy over a longer period so then they can release it over a longer period to bring up you know, greater energy, greater force into the ball. Gotcha, Mark. And so to, you know, work on the tightness in the upper back, again, I'm going to uh, stretching here. Um, would something like, you know, hanging on a pull-up bar or Supermans or something help with that? Or what what, what would you suggest for stretching? Yeah, that? so something like that is a starting point. With the thoracic region, a lot of it you can do, um, you know, on, on a foam roller. You put a foam roller on the upper back sideways, and you just put your hands behind your head and really try to get that. We, it's, you know, we get this flexion and extension movement. So we're getting range this way and that way. So we increase range in that scenario. And then we also want a little bit of thoracic rotation. Some things are called open books where you lie on your side and you bring your arm across like this. Uh, that can really open up that thoracic region. So we get a little bit more movement there. But again, the objective here is to get just that little extra range of motion through that important segment of the body so our energy transfer is optimized. Great stuff, Mark. Yeah, you know, when I watch servers, um, one thing that I really notice is, like you mentioned, you know, I, I can tell how good their, their serve is by how much, you know, rotation, you know, very few uh really amateur servers that I've seen that are, you know, have like that, the racket actually pointing all the way down. Like a lot of times they won't, drop down all the way and so that's a really a big indicator um yeah. and a lot of it is physical they're tight they're stiff they don't have the range to get there the pros that's their living they train all their life to get those positions uh it's kind of like you know in, in all sports it's sort of like it takes time to be the best uh so it's really really important that if you want to improve your serve You've got to spend time working on your body, not just hitting serves. Yeah, I really love that. I'm a big proponent of uh, health and fitness. And, uh, you know, obviously you've written a lot of great uh, books about uh, about conditioning. Um, so, and we'll link to those also uh, down below the video. So now moving to um, acceleration. Um, so what are, you know, some of the main points that we need to take away so that we can uh, improve the acceleration process? Sure. So this is really where the rubber meets the road now. We've done all our storing of energy and now we got to explode up into the ball. And this happens super fast. So we don't have that much control over what's happening at this point because we have momentum that's kicked in. 
the body's going really fast. We just got to get it started correctly. And the biggest thing here is you want to understand this concept known as shoulder over shoulder or hip over hip, meaning that we stay side on longer to the net. All the great servers do that. A lot of amateurs really struggle with that. They over rotate too early. Their shoulders become parallel to the net. We want our shoulders to be perpendicular to the net during acceleration. So that's a really, really important concept. So one of the things we talk about is making sure that our back and front shoulders is pointing to the net or pointing to our opponent even uh, as we're accelerating up into the ball. Really, really valuable point because that's about all we can control at this point because of how quick the motion is now. Got you, Mark. And so does the acceleration, uh, and hopefully this is the right phase to uh, address this, um, you know, as far as the, the rotation back to the ball, uh, does that vary among the different types of serves that you're going to hit? Like if you hit a kick, you know, there's less rotation or, you know, versus flat? No, no, the, that mechanics is basically the same. What changes is what happens at contact and the racket position. You know, between a flat serve and a slice serve, you only have approximately about a four degree difference in racket position. So it's not a big difference between a flat and a slice serve. With a kick serve, we have a little bit more variability in, in possibly ball toss uh, for most players. Uh, and then racket path does shift somewhat. But in general, that's all happening right at contact. Acceleration is pretty similar with all those serves. It just shifts a little bit as we get close to contact. Got you, Mark. And, um, I guess any tips on, uh, you know, on increasing our acceleration, how we can do that? Yeah. So working on literally that back hip driving up and out. So we do a lot of things. We call, do we do the shot put serve, which we utilize a, like a weighted ball and we really try to explode up like a shot putter would. Uh, we do a lot of band work where we've got a band resistance and we're pushing up and out. We're using that cartwheel shoulder over shoulder position to explode up in that. We do some weighted vest work. We do some resistance bungee work on single legs, mimicking the service motion. Whole series of progressions that we do with you know competitive athletes that are looking to increase their acceleration, increase their lower body acceleration. And then we do some upper body arm training as well to increase the speed there. Fantastic, Mark. And then just again to shout out to the, the book that you uh, co-authored, um, you know, Complete Conditioning for Tennis, second edition. Uh, you know, and personally, I've actually crafted my own uh, fitness and conditioning program from that book. Um, and, you know, it's really helped me a lot uh, on the court. I've been, a lot, uh, you know, I'm a lot quicker and more fit. And I really have uh, that book to thank that that you wrote. Um, and I appreciate that. We've also actually just coming out with um, some online software that's going to help a lot of folks uh, where you know, the, the workouts, it's over 700 exercises that are in there with program design options that it has an app. Athletes can go there and, you know, get personalized workouts because that's one of the biggest challenges we've had is people, you know, will do a generic program sometimes where they'll pick exercises or they'll do a standard program and it's not specific to them. So this is something that, you know, some folks may be interested in. It's called traintennis.com, T-R-A-Y-N, tennis.com. Uh, and you can take a look and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of great information there that could help a lot of players. Fantastic, Mark. And yeah, and just to, you know, also give credit to the other authors too, uh, Paul Rotert and uh, Todd Ellenbecker, who I also had on the podcast, who is a really fantastic guy as well. Yeah, they're um, two really sharp folks. I've been fortunate to be mentored by both of them. And, you know, they're definitely thought leaders in in the industry and uh, above and beyond just the tennis industry, they're two of the sharpest folks you'll ever you'll ever meet. Yeah, yeah as are you, Mark. So, um, you know, as far as the contact point now, can you describe kind of like the again, yeah, you know, the the angle? So, I guess the racket angle and also the arm angle and then the wrist position. Sure. So it has a lot to do with are you a good server or a bad server? Because contact is very different depending on who you are and how well you've got to the right position. So in general, we want our arm angle. So when we're talking our arm, we're actually talking this angle here. We want that about 120, 125 degrees or so. Most people don't realize that your arm is actually out to the side a little bit of contact. It's not straight overhead like this. So reason being is we're actually stronger there. 
The way we make contact with the ball is we have what's called lateral flexion. So we get basically this tilt at contact. So our arm's there, but we tilt this way. So that's how we're able to make contact kind of above our head. So that's a, an aspect of you have to have good range of motion. You have to have good flexibility to be able to do that correctly. Gotcha, Mark. And then, you know, as far as the uh, deceleration, can you talk about some of the core principles of that uh, that phase? Yeah. So the ball's gone now. You make contact. The ball's traveling towards the net. And hopefully you hit it really well. Uh, and then what happens here is your arm has to start to slow down. And to do that effectively, the strings of the racket that make contact with the ball actually turn outward. So if this is the string side of the racket that makes contact with the ball, after about two or three frames on a video, if it's slow motion, after contact, you actually see this motion happen, where the, the strings that hit the ball actually turn to the side fence. So you'll hear about that called, sometimes people call it pronation, which is a component of what's happening, but it's not the only thing. It's a small component, actually. It's at the end of the motion. So pronation is only from the elbow to the wrist. It's only that motion right there. So there's not a lot of range that we have there. See that? That's about all we can move. What happens is we get internal shoulder rotation first, and then that allows us to really get out there, thumb down position. So without the internal shoulder rotation, we don't get good pronation. So pronation is a very small piece of what's happening. It's actually a term called long axis rotation. The long axis is your entire arm. And it, that what's what, what makes the motion. So understand the difference there between what pronation is, which is not wrong. It's just a small segment of the entire movement and long axis rotation, which is really what's happening. So your objective there is to have your thumb down. If your racket's on the grip, it's still thumb down uh, after contact. And that's a really, really important aspect of the deceleration stage. Also, you'll hear a lot about finishing with a bit of a high elbow. So your elbow is higher than your wrist, um, which is important to think about. So you still finish all the way through, but you think high elbow, so racket below the height of the elbow, and then you finish through. So those are two aspects that all great servers go through. A lot of recreational players don't. Gotcha, Mark. And, and sorry to, I guess, to back up a tiny bit to, well, actually both the contact point and deceleration. Again, with the question of variability, are there any, uh, you know, adjustments that are needed to be made um, when you're hitting different types of serves, slice, kick, top spin, flat? Great question. So at contact, yes, there's going to be a different angle of the racket at contact. So flat versus slice versus kick is going to come this way a little bit. So that happens. Um, afterwards, though, they all look very similar. So most people don't realize a slice serve and a flat serve, you still get that motion after you make contact. Uh, a kick serve, sometimes, depending on how extreme it is, you may finish over on this side of your body more and then come through. So there is a little bit of a difference in the kick serve racket path. But the slice and the flat, the racket path is nearly identical. And a lot of times people don't realize you still finish with the racket side, string side that make contact with the ball facing the side fence that way. And then you finish across your body. Gotcha, Mark. If you don't mind, can you describe, you know, using the, the old the, uh, clock comparison of the path uh, of, you know, where you contact the ball, let's say as a righty, um, you know, from, from the beginning and, and what path do you take to brush up for first for a uh, kick serve and then for a slice serve? Sure. So a kick serve, it depends a bit on how you throw the ball up. If you're throw more of an extreme kick, meaning that the ball toss is more to your left, you may actually make contact close to, uh, you know, out here at 11 o'clock. That's possible. So with that swing path, you're going to come across 11, 12, 1, before you start to decelerate. So it's brushing that way. Uh, with more advanced servers, they're not going to throw it that far to the left because they don't want to give away the serve to their opponent. So they're more at 11.30, 12 o'clock, and they just swing faster. So they have a faster swing speed so they don't have to cover as much distance to get the same impact on the ball. So that's usually the difference you see in the kick serve. Uh, with a slice serve, you're usually going to have it at 12.30, 1 o'clock, maybe up at 2 o'clock if you've, you're happy to give away what serve you're going to do. 
The further you throw the ball to your right for a right-hander, the more obvious it's going to be that you're going to hit a slice serve. The better level you play, the less you can get away with that. So it comes down a little bit at the lower levels. You see a lot of people throw the ball at 2 o'clock maybe, 1.30, because they're very comfortable giving away the serve because they're playing people that aren't that good anyway and they'd rather hit more slice. But the better you are, the less variation you're going to have in all your serve tosses. You may only have a half a half an hour difference in the clock uh, between all serves. So it's very difficult to see the difference when your opponent is playing you. Right, Mark. And I'm sorry if I, I missed it. So then for the slice serve, um, the normal contact would be at, at what uh, what time would that be? Nor would it be three o'clock, or would it be a little bit higher? No, it's going to be it's going to be closer to sort of one o'clock, okay. more more than likely on most good servers. One thirty to two on people that really are trying to chase it and throw it out wide like that. Awesome, great yeah, stuff. Three o'clock's pretty far out there. That's like a sidearm type of serve, and yeah, there are people that do that. But that's all they can do. If they throw it out there, then it's mainly an arm serve as well. You're not going to get the pace that you want. Right, right, exactly. But not the uh, not the um, most optimal arm positioning. Um, so great stuff. And so, uh, you know, another question for you, obviously the finish. So uh, right. what are the key components for that? So the finish is interesting because a lot of people spend time on the finish thinking it's somehow going to help their actual serve. You've got to realize the ball's already on the other side of the net by the time you finish. So anything you do at the finish isn't directly impacting the serve. What it does do is prepares you for the next shot. So you want to be stable. You want to keep your head up. You want to make sure that your body position is able to then stop. So land on your front foot, on your left foot for a right-hander. And then you have to then stabilize quickly so your right foot can come down and you can be ready for the next shot. Because what you may need to do is get back a little bit you may need to run to the net on the next two or three steps. So you have to have good stability, good balance to be able to accomplish that. Great stuff, Mark. You know, I've, I've seen obviously a lot of pictures like of John um, hitting the serve, uh, you know, he's on his left foot. And so um, this, you know, a minor question, I guess, but, the, you know, is the, uh, is the left arm the non-dominant arm? Is that supposed to kind of like, you know, go back as a result of the the uh, all the force uh, thrown forward, or how, what's the role of the non-dominant arm? Great, great question. Because one of the things is the non-dominant arm should actually be close to the side, more to the midline of the body, up through contact, and then as you're coming through contact, you start opening up a little bit as the ball goes, and then that arm is going to swing out a little bit to the left side. However, that's a result of the forces and speed of the movement. It's not something you shouldn't have to coach or train. That should happen naturally the faster you swing. So people that swing faster and have more forces coming through are going to have more of a rotation at the end after you've made contact. So it's not something necessarily that impacts the serve itself. It's a counterbalance or a result of the, the service motion and how the forces have come through. Fantastic, Mar. It's really is amazing stuff here today. Uh, so before I ask you what you're up to, just uh, you know, want to ask maybe uh, any closing thoughts or uh, actionable advice that you can give the audience to, uh, to improve their game based on this uh, eight-stage model. Yeah, no, the biggest thing is take care of the beginning parts of the motion. Forget about contact. Too many times we focus on contact. We want to make sure we take care of the mechanics early in the motion, especially the release of the ball and the loading mechanics. Make sure that is done correctly. And then over time, then we can spend more time at contact once the base and the foundation of the serve is done right. Too many times we work backwards from contact rather than starting where it really matters. We've got to find the cause, got to fix the cause, and then we can work our way to contact. Too many players are too concerned about contact early on when they don't have the good mechanics to start with. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Mark. It's all about, um, you know, starting from the beginning and uh, making sure that each, uh, each stage or phase is correct. Uh, great stuff, Mark. I just want to uh, let the audience know and, and really, I guess, ask you, you know, uh, what you're up to today. I know that the Kovacs Institute you is a fairly recent uh, opening and you also have a uh, markovacs.com, uh, your, your website, which I'll link to. Um, so, yeah, just, just tell us what you're up to. Sure. So there's a few different things that what's going on right now. Um, you know, I'm a co-founder as well and so is the executive director of the International Tennis Performance Association. 
So that's the um, Educational Trade Association for fitness professionals, strength coaches, athletic trainers, physical therapists, chiropractors that work with tennis athletes as well as tennis coaches. Um, and it, it's all aspects of physical training. So there are members in 39 countries. Uh, they work with tennis athletes across the board. So that's at itpa-tennis.org. Uh, and that's a lot of fun. We have our World Tennis Fitness Conference every summer in Atlanta alongside the ATP event here in Atlanta. And that's the weekend of July 22nd and 23rd. So that's a great event, even for recreational players, because you'll hear some of the best speakers uh, anywhere on tennis and tennis fitness, tennis movement, tennis conditioning, tennis rehab. So, you know, that's, that's a good date to put on the calendar. Uh, then with the Institute here in Atlanta, uh, we do product testing for major companies. We work a lot in the technology space within tennis and outside with a lot of other sports. Uh, we host educational events. Um, we've got a big event coming up with uh, doc, Dr. Caldwell, who uh, works with the Denver Broncos on the Colorado Rockies. Uh, and we do a lot of different things at the Institute, training athletes, assessing uh, athletes, uh, and then also education and product testing. So those are the few things going on right now, but uh, there's, there's always something new. So, yeah, people can follow me on Twitter as well at mcovacsphd. Uh, ask me questions on Twitter whenever you like. I'm, I'm on there pretty regularly. Uh, it's a good way to communicate in short doses. So, yeah, it's just exciting time in the sport. Uh, there's a lot of great young talent coming through from all over the world. I'm fortunate to work with a lot of the young American players coming through right now, and there's a handful of them that everyone's going to start seeing over the next year or two. So uh, it really is a great time for the sport. Great stuff, Mark. Yeah, I know there's uh, some people that I know in the tennis industry, like uh, Anna Blitcher, who's gone through your training and really enjoyed it and learned so much. And, uh, you know, Mark, I just want to thank you so much for, uh, you know, uh, being a guest on the uh, Tennis Technique Summit. Uh, you've really given a lot for us to think about, a lot of fantastic advice. And I'm sure that if the audience just takes one of those uh, you know, points to heart, they're going to really improve their game. Uh, so it's really fantastic. Uh, time uh, that we've had uh, talking about the eight stage model of the serve and uh, I wish you all the best uh, Mark and uh, looking forward to speaking with you again soon thanks so much for everything you're doing for the sport as well keep up the great work thanks a lot Mark take care all right. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Mark Kovacs. As always, it's a pleasure to talk to him. And I hope you enjoyed this throwback, as you can call it, uh, from the summit. It's always great to review timeless information like this to help you improve your tennis game. And as always, you will be able to find all the resources that I mentioned, that we both mentioned on the podcast episode today at the show notes page, which for this episode is tennisfiles.com slash 81 or you can go to tennisfiles.com slash podcast to find about all the other episodes and listen to them and you can always find all these episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podcast Addict, etc. Google Podcasts as well, which is one that I'm actually using these days on my Android phone. Go Android. But on another note too, I hope that you all enjoyed the Australian Open. I think by this time, which will be Wednesday when you hear this episode, I won't be spoiling the results any longer. I know I, I sent out an email a couple of days ago in which I talked about, I can't remember, I think it might have been Nadal's win the day after, or no, I'm sorry, it was actually Stefano Tsitsipas's, uh, one of his big wins the uh, against Federer. Uh, the morning afterwards, and I did have a complaint, very valid complaint, that you know people who watch these matches on the DVRs they would appreciate it if I didn't spoil it for them. So, trying to be more cognizant of that. But yes, it's quite quite the tournament. Djokovic is in top form, just amazing. And uh, if you haven't yet, you should listen to his uh, podcast interview on the School of Greatness podcast with Lewis Howes. That's a really a uh, fantastic one to get an insight of his life. And it was very interesting because most of it wasn't really about tennis. It was just about his struggle as a young kid and his uh, values and upbringing. And that's super important. And I remember hearing in his interview after he won against Nadal that one of his biggest keys to his success was simply believing in himself and his abilities. And he mentioned that even though 
He was injured last year. He still believed that he could get back to the top. And that is basically why he, he was able to do it. So that self-belief is just one of the most important traits that you can have in yourself. And obviously that is developed through you know honing your skills and getting confident in your game and things like that. And then when you add the confidence in yourself and the self-belief that you can do great things and will do great things, then that is what's going to propel you to the top. So just wanted to preach a little bit randomly for you, but I hope that that gave you some motivation to keep working on your game and becoming the best player that you can possibly be. And uh, as always, I'd like to leave you with a quote. And the quote is by Og Mandino. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And the quote is, failure will never overtake me if my determination to succeed is strong enough. And this is a brilliant quote. As always, I'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast. And you can do that by hitting the subscribe button on uh, iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can go to tennisfiles.com slash iTunes to subscribe on there. And uh, with that, I really appreciate you listening to this episode. And we will certainly see you, I hope, on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.